Well, good morning. What a great, great song and what great music this morning. Thank you, choir. It is just uh, amazing to see this loft filled. And thank you, orchestra, every week. We are so grateful for the incredible music that God gives uh, to us and the chance to worship him. It's, it's good to be, be home with you today. We took a, a couple days um, away and uh, went up. You know, our, our favorite thing is to go to exciting, exotic places like Waco. And so we, we went up there and um, we drove up for Sing. And uh, this may not be significant to you, but this is the 30th uh, anniversary of the weekend of our first date. So this was a big deal for us. And we went up and uh, we were able to go because one of our children, our youngest, was on the fifth grade retreat. Uh, with 40-something fifth graders, and uh, our next oldest child was uh, on, on the Spark Weekend, Disciple Now Weekend that we have. So we were free to go, and along the way, I, um, I called my dad to uh, talk to him about um, some family relationships. First time I ever talked to my dad about his dad and his relationship with his uh, father, his grandfather, and I just say that to say to you, I'm still working on family Based on our teachings in the book of Ephesians, I'm still working on family. Melanie and I went to Wendy's, which is where we met uh, again on the second time, two years after we met the first time, and we ate at Wendy's, and it was marvelous again. <laughs> and uh, just exciting weekend. I want you to know we're, we're, we're using the resources you give us well. And um, so this has helped me, and today we, we move on from relationships within family, but we never move on, do we? My point is, I'm still working on that, and I hope you are as well. And beyond our families, we begin to think about our relationships with the world around us, and often that happens in the arena of work. So the Word of God has a word for us in this specific issue of work. How do you feel about work, about the work that you're doing or the work that you used to do or the work that you want to do. I heard uh, Mark Vandermeer, the voice of the Texans, say this week, I never want to retire. See, I sort of feel that way. He said, I just, I love what I do. I never want to retire. Why would anybody want to retire? And uh, one of his longtime listeners called in and said, I fix air conditioners for a living. And he said, it may be that if I did what you do, I would never want to retire sitting in a radio studio talking for a living. But he said, give me three days, Mark, and climb up in attics in Houston in the summertime. You will be ready to retire. I mean, right then, you'll be ready. And I wonder how we feel about work. And the Apostle Paul has a word for us. If we love our work or we don't love our work or we we sort of resent our boss or we think our employees aren't exactly all that they ought to be for all of these situations Paul has a word would you stand with me to read Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 and hear the word of the Lord Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because You know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way 
Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we want to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We might be tempted to think that these words that Paul speaks are in some way outdated for our day. We don't hear much about slavery in these days. Immediately our minds go back to a very dark period in the history of our country and the Western world in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries when people were bought and sold. And we may this morning sort of breathe a sigh of relief and say, well, I'm glad we've moved way beyond that. But I understand from authorities on the subject that our city has become a hub for the sex trafficking industry in our world, that there are people who are literally being put into slavery for the sake of the sin of others. So just to remind you that sin, this side of heaven, sin never ends. And we must be wary, we must be vigilant in the world we live in. It is not to say that our concept of slavery is exactly what was going on in the first century world. Because slaves in the first century world were hardly distinguishable from everybody else. They weren't distinguishable by the clothes they wore, by uh, the money they had, uh, by their ethnicity. In fact, slavery was more of an economic sort of issue and financially they made as much money as the other free workers who did the same thing. The result of that was they were often able to buy their own freedom. So nobody in the first century expected to live their whole lives as a slave. The average length of slavery was about 10 years. But I would think, would you agree with me, that about 10 minutes of being a slave would be more than anybody would ever want to have. And it would be easy for slaves in the first century to be resentful of their place in life. And we can understand that. And we may wonder as we read this, why didn't Paul just say, stop slavery now? Why didn't he just say that? And I don't have an easy answer for that, but I would remind you that that in the very words that he wrote, he laid the foundation for the eventual abolition of slavery. It was in these words when he says to slaves, let me set you free by saying, you don't really belong to your earthly master, you work for your master. And he gave dignity even to the work of of slavery by saying you do what you do for the Lord fully six times in five verses he talks about the master you are slaves of Christ he says you work for Christ obey your master as if you were obeying the Lord because you have a master and by the way your master has a master and we're all going to answer to him When I look at these verses and try to understand what they mean for people like us, it may be that we feel like we are slaves at work. One of our children was cleaning up a bookcase recently that had been messed up and and this child just turned around and said, I feel like a slave. 
I said, really? You feel like a slave? You messed up the bookcase, and now I'm asking you to put it back the way it was. Okay, you feel like a slave. And it may be that in our work we feel like slaves. Or it may be that we treat our employees like slaves. The word of God for us is, you do what you do as unto the Lord And in fact, your work is a witness for the Lord. It's a reflection on your relationship with God. So whatever you do, do it, he says, wholeheartedly because you are serving the Lord. So can I just ask us this morning, what if the best way people around us can understand who God is, is by the way that we work? What if the only way those who work with us, work for us, or for whom we work can understand relationship with Christ is by the way we work? What do they think about God when they watch the way that we work? It's an important question because we spend a lot of time at work, or we have spent a lot of time at work, or we will spend a lot of time at work, and And work is the place where we get to reflect on Christ. One of my friends puts it this way. Pastor, we are all in ministry. We just fund it in different ways. Paul said to the first century Christians, even to the slaves, you are in ministry. You're ministering to your your master. You're ministering to your master. So trust your work to the Lord. What does God know about work? I I love the old spiritual which says Jesus Christ, the first and the last. No man works like him. Jesus worked as a carpenter and then he worked as an itinerant preacher and he worked everywhere he went. Jesus was always working. The Apostle Paul himself was a tent maker, a bivocational preacher who made tents so that he could teach the truth about who God was. And so when he says to slaves, obey your earthly masters, and he gives just some attitudinal adjustments here with respect, with fear, I think not trembling, but maybe reverence with sincerity. That word actually means generosity of heart. Work generously. Do your best. Give all that you have. Obey them, he says, because when you do, you're doing The will of God, George W. Truett said, the highest knowledge is to know the will of God. The best behavior is to do the will of God. We are often educated well beyond our level of obedience. He says, when you obey your boss, you are obeying the Lord. I know it may be hard for you to imagine what a preacher might know about that, but I counted one day, and I think I've had like 17 different kinds of jobs in my lifetime. I started really, really early. I was a distributor of brochures for a company named Tour. That was my first job, $1 an hour. I loved the first hour or two of it. And then it became boring, and it occurred to me, who knows what I'm doing right now? My boss is in a high-rise building somewhere else on the base. Here I am alone, and... And there came a moment in my life when I realized even when nobody's watching, God is watching. My master is always watching. Let me give you hope today if you feel like nobody knows what you're doing. You're not working for the owner of your company. You're working for the owner of the cosmos, for the owner of the world. 
He owns all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everything we do reflects on Him. He sees what we're doing. So He says, work with the right attitude because in so doing, you are doing the will of God. He says, you're obeying Christ in verse 5. You're slaves of Christ in verse 6. You're serving the Lord in verse 7. In verse 8, He says, the Lord will reward you. In verse 9, He says, you have a master who is in heaven. This is about God. Your work is about God. It's about your relationship with Him. And He says, this God for whom you work has everything to do not only with your family relationships, we've seen that, but with your work relationships. Larry Bertrand and I have a friend named Dale who is a great mechanic. He works on Hondas. We both have Hondas. Lots of people on staff have Hondas. Lots of you have Hondas. Dale Fulbright is great. His dad, interestingly, was the um, dean of the School of Music at Boston University. And he has a son who's a mechanic. And I just want to say about Dale, he works on Hondas the same way his dad conducted orchestras. He does it with finesse, with artistry, and with a deep Christian commitment. You say, how do you work on a Honda with a Christian commitment? Well, let me give you an example. About, oh, 500 miles after my Honda went out of warranty, we had a major engine problem. And I went to Dale, and I said, Dale, you know, I don't know what this is. And he said, well, I have bad news for you. I'll never forget the call. He said, I have bad news for you. It's going to cost you about $2,000. I was like, $2,000? I mean, this is a Honda, isn't it? He said, yeah. I said, well, I buy Hondas for reliability. He said, yeah, but it's out of warranty. I said, it's 500 miles out of warranty. I said, I wouldn't be surprised if you called me and said, oh, you got a two or $300 repair. But I mean, $2,000, I said, I just, you know, I said, that just doesn't sound right to me. And he could have said, well, that's just the way it is. But instead he said, you know, you've got a point, pastor. He said, maybe, hey, why don't I talk to my boss for you? And I'll advocate you to my boss. And maybe my boss will advocate you to the Honda dealer. And maybe we can work on this a little bit. And before long... He had fixed my car. It cost me three or four hundred dollars. I didn't get it for free. It's not that good of a story, but but three or four hundred, you'll agree with me, is a lot better than two thousand dollars. And it occurred to me after all that was over with, I thought, why did Dale do that? I mean, why did he get involved with that? Why did he put his neck on the line going to his boss saying, Hey, we can make three or four hundred dollars instead of two thousand on this deal if we treat this guy right? You know, why did he do that? And my only answer to that is, yeah, Dale's a Christian. He's a Christian who happens to be a mechanic. For all the things you hear about mechanics, my dad's a mechanic. I mean, mechanics, there are a lot of great people who are mechanics. For all the things you hear, here's Dale, who I think in some ways cared more about his customer than he did about the situation. And the the interesting thing is, I think in in the end, he was loyal to his company. Because if I'd paid $2,000 to fix that 500 miles out of warranty, that would have been my last Honda that I ever owned. But when he worked with me on that, it just reminded me that it's one thing to be a mechanic, but that's not who Dale is first. Dale is first a follower of Jesus Christ. He's a member of our daughter church out in Kingsland. See what good things happen when you plant a church, saves your pastor money 25 years later. It's a great thing. What you see, though, is the deep commitment that he has to Christ. And this is what Paul says. He says, when you do what you do for Christ, here's what you know, verse 8, because you know. It's not you, you hope or you guess or you wish. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. The Lord will reward. In other words, we answer to God for what we do. I hear sometimes about preachers who are great preachers who are, who are apparently tyrants at work. 
And I said last night in our congregation, I said, you can't preach well enough on Saturday night to make it okay to mistreat your employees on Monday through Friday. One of our employees said, amen. I don't know exactly. His wife elbowed him at that moment. He's got sore ribs today. But I believe that we answer to the Lord and that the Lord rewards those. So you say, I wouldn't do what I do. I hate what I do. I wouldn't do it. Would you? Like, can I ask you, would you do it for Jesus? I have a, a wonderful job. But there are days when there, there are hard times and difficult things. And oftentimes when I find a difficult thing in ministry, the song that pops into my head, I don't know why, it's not particularly profound. It's a Dallas Home song. Remember the one who wrote, you know, I'll Rise Again? Kind of a, a Rambo song back in the 70s, you know. Jesus, you know, saying, go ahead, kill me, make my day, because I'll rise again. The, 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 um, the deans of schools of Christian music didn't like that song very much. They didn't like the lyrics. But a lot of people did. But he had another song that had terrible grammar. And this is the song that pops in my head when work becomes difficult. Lord, I'd sure never do this for nobody but you. I wouldn't do this for, for nobody but you. I think about that nurse years ago who was doing that work of caring for the soldiers who were dying And it was gruesome work. And somebody said, I wouldn't do what you do for all the money in the world. And she said, neither would I. That's not why I do what I do. Lord, I'd never do this for anybody but you. The rest of the song says, but you left heaven for me. Hit the road on the shores of Galilee. Gave yourself at Calvary. So I've got to go and tell them what you did for me why would we do what we do because our Lord is we've studied it in Hebrews in the mornings if you've been doing those devotionals with us chapter 11 verse 6 where he says whoever comes to him must believe that he is and that he is one who rewards those who diligently seek him God rewards God cares about us we are his we are his employees if you will we work for him and because we work for him and I love this passage of scripture because it just reminds us that we do what we do for God to please him and we have to care about those we do what we do for the Lord I I teach a class at I'll confess I moonlight sometimes I teach a class every once in a while at HBU and uh, I was teaching over there a, a New Testament theology class. And I always pray with my students before the class. And I always ask them, how can I pray for you? And one of my employees, is a C- one, of my employees one of my students is a CPA. And he owns a number of companies. He's a young man. And we were just talking. And he said, yeah, here's how I want you to pray. Everybody else was saying, pray for me. I've got a test tomorrow. I was like, yeah, just study. You know, we'll pray for you, but you need to study. But this, this man, every time he says, you know, I had an employee this week who got married, and he said, I went to her wedding, and that was just a great thing, and I thought, wow, here's a boss who goes to his employee's wedding, that's pretty cool, and then he said this last week, he said, there's this woman who works for me, and she has cancer, and we thought she was doing better, and she's been taking chemo, and she went back this week, and the the cancer's gotten worse, we don't think she's going to make it, And the compassion in that man's heart for his employees reminded me that it's possible, and this is what Paul says in verse 9, to turn your business into a place of ministry. I look across this congregation, I know some of you who have done that very thing, who've had compassion on your employees and invited them to join you in ministry, and that workplace becomes a place of ministry. And Paul says, look, not only does God reward you, but if you own the company, if you're the master, he says, you don't only trust your work to Christ, but you treat your workers like they were Christ. You care that much about them 
So you love them and you minister to them. And he says you treat them in the same way. Now look, it was not revolutionary for somebody to say in the first century, slaves, do what your masters tell you to do. I'll tell you what was revolutionary was for Paul to say, and by the way, you masters have responsibility to your slaves. Treat them the same way you want them to treat you. Sounds a lot like the golden rule, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what if you're in a position of power above them? The great... The great issues of life, Richard Foster says, money, sex, and power. How are we doing with money? How are we doing with relationships? How are we doing with the power that we have over those who work with us? And what if the way we wield power has everything to do with our relationship? I saw saw this... um, quote from an administrative assistant whose boss came in and said, I want you to rush this job. And she said, okay, do you want me to rush this job or um, the job that you just told me to rush or the next one that you want me to, to rush? Which one do you want me to rush? I mean, how are we to treat those who work for us? Are we Donald Trump? Do we say you're fired? Is that the way we exercise authority as Christians? Or are we those who look at our employees as though they were Christ and say, how can I minister to this person's need today? He says, don't Don't threaten them. Treat them with kindness. Care about your employees. Um, The Herman Miller Company is led by a man named Max Dupree who wrote a bunch of books on leadership. And he talks about the water carrier, the person in the company that nobody's even aware of, but who becomes the lifeblood of the company and how you ought to care for the water carrier in the company. He tells about the millwright in his company back in the 1920s who really made the whole thing work and the millwright died and his father who was a young manager went to the millwright's house to minister to this family and here's this wife and these kids and the wife says can I read some poetry to you and so he says sure and she pulls out this bound book of poetry and starts reading the most beautiful poetry and and um, Max Dupree's dad says yeah who wrote that poetry she said well my husband did turns out the millwright was a poet to this day Max Dupree says we don't know whether he was a millwright who wrote poetry or a poet who worked as a millwright but to serve Christ in our companies we have to know the people with whom we work we have to know the people who work for us and deeply care about them and pray for them and minister to them and he says when you do that you just realize you've got a master and with your master there is no favoritism. You have to know that, that God doesn't play favorites. When I called my dad this week on the way to Waco, I was asking about his dad and his granddad, just trying to understand the dynamics of our family, which affected his life, which affects me, which affects our kids, which I'm learning will probably affect their kids someday. And I just said, tell me about how your dad related to his dad. And he started telling me the story. And my dad's never sort of opened up this way to me before. And I said, did you spend any time in your granddad's home? He said, yeah, I did, I did. His granddad was always kind of his hero. And I knew that. And he said, but you know, the funny thing about my granddad was, he said, there were four of us kids. And he played favorites. Two could do no wrong. And two could do no right. And he said, I was kind of on the outside looking in. And I didn't have the courage to ask my dad in that conversation. So how did that feel? But I think I already know the answer. Yeah, crummy. It felt lousy when somebody's playing favorites. And if you're the favorite, it may feel wonderful. But if you're not the favorite, it doesn't feel so great. 
And the great thing about our God is, Paul says, yeah, he never plays favorites. Whether you're a slave or a master, whether you're an employee or an employer, he doesn't play favorites. So you don't play favorites. So you treat people with dignity and respect because you want to be treated with dignity and respect. And when you do, it speaks volumes about who our God is. And if you want to say, well, why didn't Paul just abolish slavery? Well, I just took the time this week to read again the story of Philemon. Do that this week and listen to what he says when he writes to his friend Philemon, whom he led to Christ, and he calls him his brother. And he says, Philemon, you're my brother. He says, I'm writing to you because your former slave, Onesimus, who ran away from you, yeah, I ran into him. Now imagine Onesimus, who's running away from his slave owner, who's a Christian, and he runs right into Paul. And the thing about running into Paul was you couldn't run into Paul without running into Jesus. Is that true of you? And he runs into Jesus, and and Onesimus becomes a Christian, and he begins to serve with Paul and Paul realizes, though, there's a responsibility to his master, and so he sends him back home with a letter. And he knows Onesimus could be severely punished for running away, but he says to Philemon, I'm sending him back to you not as a slave, but as a brother. And I know, I love Paul, he's not very subtle, is he? I know you owe me your whole life, Philemon, but by the way, if Onesimus owes you anything, put that on my tab. Oh, and... um, Philemon, I'm coming to stay with you soon. A little bit of accountability there. I'll be there soon. And I want you to know Onesimus is not your slave anymore. He is your brother. I can't wait to get to heaven to ask how all that played out. (laughs) That'd be interesting, won't it, just to know. But I think I know. I was um, trying to figure out how to spell Appomattox this week. It's not as easy as you think. And I googled it and I started chasing. And I, Israel Hill on the Appomattox caught my eye. I should have been working, but I just followed. And it was an amazing story about a man named Richard Randolph who at the age of 26 died. He was a cousin of Thomas Jefferson. And in his will, he said, I want to set all of my slaves free and give them each 50 acres of land. And that land was on a hill called Israel Hill on the Appomattox River. His wife, when she could afford it, set all of those slaves free and they became a free community there just outside the town of Farmville in Virginia. And one of those former slaves, Hercules White, an African-American with a couple of Anglo-Americans founded a church. It was the first Baptist church of Farmville, Virginia. And I'm reading this in the 1700s in Virginia of all places All of God's children come together and form a church. And I thought, amazing things happen when we begin to practice what the Scriptures teach. Hey, we are all in ministry. We just fund it in different ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your ministry to us. Thank you for grace that is greater than all of our sin. Help us, I pray today, to take seriously the gospel. Thank you for setting us free so that we who are free are free indeed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.